seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And on today's program, we have a very uh, topical topic, an important topical, topically topical topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about the strategy for the left going forward, not only in the immediate term, but the medium term and the long term. These are big questions. I asked them a lot on Dead Pundit Society, and my guest today has done us the service of offering a lot of guidance about strategic questions. He is one half of the combination that wrote a brilliant and long article in Catalyst Journal from summer 2019 that was called A Socialist Party in Our Time? Question mark, very provocatively so. And they have uh, done a service for us in distilling that long article into a much more digestible, politically motivated piece in the latest print issue of Jackman Magazine that is called Blueprint for a Revolution. The co-authors there is Dustin Guastella, who is unfortunately not joining us today, but we are joined by the other co-author, that is Jared Abbott. He is a PhD candidate at Harvard, Department of Government. Jared, thanks for coming on the show. No, it's great to be here. I love uh, listening to the podcast and uh, I learn a lot uh, every week and I'm excited to talk with you. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Uh, nice to connect with you. You know, this piece that motivated the, the latest Jacobin uh, distillation of that piece, I think is one of the, the most underrated, under-remarked, under-reported, under-discussed articles that's come out in, I mean, maybe the last several years. And I suspect that's because it's going to take a little bit of time for people to digest exactly what it is that you're saying on the one hand. On the other hand, well, part two of that, you know, consideration as to why it's not been discussed enough is because we're in the midst of the rat race. Right. And although this, this definitely has electoral connotations and implications, it's definitely the case that it's much more sort of medium to long-term perspective that you're putting forward here with your co-host, Dustin Guastella. And, and, you know, we're, we're kind of in the trenches now. We've got our backs to the wall. We have to, to fight in the here and now in order to get to where we want to go with respect to this Bernie Sanders campaign. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, I'll get you a, a chance to talk all about the argument uh, in, in these pieces. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Your biography is instructive in terms of, you know, giving people a context as to why you're writing this piece and where you're coming from. Yeah, so – you know, I'm principally a political scientist, uh, study Latin America, social movements and participatory democracy. But I've been a very long, well, not maybe relatively speaking, uh, very, but uh, I've been an activist, uh, socialist activist for over a decade. And I was in DSA in different chapters, helping to get them off the ground or restart or restart them in, in several different cities before the, the great boom of DSA and, uh, you know, after the election in 2016. And so, you know, I've kind of seen the evolution of DSA and the radically changing kind of expectations that we've had and our sense of what's possible over the years. And, you know, we were hoping to write a piece like this to 
try to add some of that sort of longer term perspective into our strategic discussions about electoral politics in not just DSA. this isn't just about DSA. I mean, this is I mean, we do talk about DSA because that's our experience. But, you know, this is something that this is an argument that could certainly be applied to some sort of organization that's uh, much broader than DSA. You know, but like I said, this is the sort of trajectory that Dustin and I come out of. And, you know, we're looking at all of these questions sort of through the lens of our long experience um, going from a socialist organization that was totally marginal, borderline, should it still exist, where questions were being asked, you know, 10 years ago to a place where now it seems like we're doing so much better, which, you know, in relative terms, we certainly are. And it's incredible and unbelievable in so many different ways. But of course, once you get to where we are now, you realize that, well, we were starting from such a low base that now we're just sort of getting into the game. And we're going to have to start thinking about questions of power and of, you know, strategic trade-offs and a range of other issues that would have been inconceivable to us, you know, just a few years ago. That's right. And I think, you know, um, this piece asks all the right questions. I mean, I mentioned there's an important corrective you made there about this is this article isn't about DSA, but it's funny the way that I I, I sort of use DSA as a placeholder in a sense on this show. Right. And that might that might, you know, sometimes my guests or even I push back on myself about that. That's not to sort of like erase. I'm not trying to erase (laughs) the hard work of DSA, uh, put them under erasure, you know, in the language of the old uh, 2012 Tumblr days. Um, but, but instead to just suggest that like, we can both be motivated and inspired by the hard work of DSA and, and their, their activists, um, not only in the Bernie Sanders campaign, but beyond that in various labor organization settings and, and, uh, other, other, you know, grassroots socialists inspired struggles at the locals and regional level. Uh, but that's to suggest that, you know, we have to look beyond that, that somewhat limited horizon and to start thinking about really making an impact on the, on the political level. And your piece goes in depth about that. So let's start actually with, let's frame this through the lens of your Jacobin distillation of the catalyst piece. So for people who I already mentioned this in in the intro here, but your catalyst piece came out some months ago, it's called a socialist party in our time question mark. It's a very long piece, but also very worth the effort. Um, not long for the academic set, but it's definitely not a, a Jacobin quick read. And you go through the history of various mass parties. You talk about the organizational constraints of the Democratic Party in terms of taking it over uh, versus, you know, working outside of it. You talk about this kind of um, this false dichotomy that has presented itself on on those terms, right? Do we, A, and there's only two options here. That's the key. There's only ever been two options, so it seems. Do we, A, take over the Democratic Party from the inside and wield it for our own purposes? Or is that ridiculous? Or do we then therefore do we, B, you know, um, work from the outside? Now, a couple of years ago, people started saying, well, maybe we don't have to do both. Maybe we can orchestrate some kind of break. But what I love about you and your your approach here and with your co-author, Dustin Guastella, is that you suggest that, sure, there needs to be some kind of break. There needs to be some kind of realignment. But that's taking the that's taking the the conclusion and placing it as at the front of the story, right? The break will be the result of something, right? right. Um, or it start could with be, yeah. a, or it could be. You don't start with a break, 
that's that's the end result. And so what you're trying to do here is fill in that gap. Does that appropriately uh, explain the motivations of this piece? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's something that, you know, the issue of what what does it mean to what well, on the one hand, I hate to bring up this question of are we trying to separate from the Democratic Party or are we trying to create or are we trying to take it over? Because I think in a lot of ways, well, that's a very important question if we're having a conversation with the broader progressive movement. But I think when it, when we're talking specifically to socialists and people in DSA, I actually feel like in some ways it's a it's more of a it's it's not as a productive of a question because we often just sort of start ta- talking past each other and and I feel like the piece here um, I do think it's important to recognize that we don't know what the outcome of trying to build some sort of independent political force that uses the Democratic Party ballot line strategically might end up looking like it might end up we might end up getting kicked out of the uh, of the Democratic Party, you know, by various ways that they could change their rules to not allow you know uh, our candidates to run on the ballot line anymore. This is certainly something that's happened historically, say, like with the Farmer Labor Party or, or, or you know, the nonpartisan league before it in, 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 uh, in, uh, in early 20th century. But, you know, in the short to medium term, I think, you know, among socialists, you know, there's there's an increasing awareness or almost consensus, maybe not consensus, but there's a lot of people in DSA who who agree with the idea that we need to have some sort of organized, independent infrastructure that has some sort of platform and does electoral work, you know, largely uh, on the Democratic Party ballot line. And so I think that, you know, that is something that is uh, more becoming more and more true of, of people in DSA, at least as far as I can tell, although certainly not everybody agrees with that. Um, and then this other question of like, well, what does that mean in the long term in terms of our relationship to the Democratic Party? You know, I think that's a, it is an important question for socialists because, you know, we might get to a point where, where we need to have that conversation. But right now, I actually, you know, it's not something that's going to have a major effect on what we're doing in the next five or potentially the next 10 years or whatever. Uh, I, I mean, that's all assuming that uh, Sanders doesn't win the presidency, by the way. And so I think this is that's something I would really love to talk about is and something we didn't get into in either of these pieces, which is I think both of these pieces really assume that Bernie Sanders doesn't become president, because if he does, then I think all bets are off. And there's a whole host of other options in terms of party building that we would need to talk about. But assuming that Bernie didn't become president, you know, the question of what ultimately is our relationship to the Democratic Party is, is like we say in the piece, it's a strategic one. It's, well, eventually either the major donors in the party that discipline candidates and force them away from, you know, more progressive or social democratic or democratic socialist policies, they'll either abandon the party and they'll go to the Republicans or some potentially other party or we'll get kicked out of the party. But in, in either event, we need to build a very powerful, independent uh, political organization that can scare the crap out of the mainstream Democratic Party uh, in the short to medium term so that we can get to the point where that becomes a question, where we're powerful enough, that we scare them enough that either they say, we're out of here, it's your party now, and then all of a sudden we can just change the name of the Democratic Party to the Labor Party or to whatever we want to call it, or 
you know, we get kicked out of the party and then we have to think about an alternative. But those are outcomes. Those are, you know, the, the, the important question is not what are we doing with respect to the Democratic Party tomorrow? Every, you know, we need to build an independent infrastructure and we need to run candidates on the Democratic Party ballot line. And we need to keep doing that essentially until we have enough power that we could actually start having a conversation about, well, what would it mean to, you know, contest for real power either say at a state level or or you know eventually at the national level right i mean in, in pieces and discussions debates like this one are so important because there're a lot of people who have come around from various tendencies as they were once called i i always hated the tendency obsession that the extremely online left had in the wake of the bernie explosion in 2016 2017. Um, I always thought it obscured more than it revealed, but you know, there's this sort of like um, enthusiasm of the neophyte, enthusiasm of the newbie, or what have you, when it comes to you know devouring the, all of the information and the possibilities and any subculture, right? So people come to the left and they're soft Bernie crats or they're sort of like shitty anarchists, and then suddenly they discover there's a whole universe of like these like you know micro. Uh, ideologies that you can have inside the left in terms of what tradition you, you know, uphold or admire or, you know, subscribe to and what strategic orientation, what's your perception, you know, of the state, you know, what do we do with it? What is, where does power come from? Are you more sort of vertically oriented, horizontally oriented? Um, you know, uh, these are questions that were very in intriguing to the, to the young green online left of, of many years ago, or just a few years ago, actually, but they, but they have matured. Um, you see the collapse of organization like the ISO and the ISO for a long time was a banner carrier of, of the sort of radical so-called revolutionary left agenda in the United States and abroad. You know, most of us cut our teeth. If you've been on the left for over a decade like you and I have, you will have almost certainly cut your teeth on a book that was written by a former ISO member, founder, you know, uh, some about Marx or social, the, the case for socialism or socialism 101 or those types of texts, right? And, and the, the reason why I'm going on well, this For me, long, it was G.A. Cohen, but uh, – Yeah, true. well, you know, not all of us get that lucky. Cohen's got his limitations. <laughs> I'm more uh, – you know, I, 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 I'm actually quite in favor of bullshit Marxism as, as some of his uh, ilk would, call, would have called it. But that's another story. Um, not, the, not the hyper – anyway. I digress. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. Cohen would have been a, a better uh, a better introduction than I won't name names because some of them have come around. And I'll say Alan Moss. Alan Moss was the editor publisher of Haymarket Books. Um, I assume Haymarket is uh, something that's still around uh, following the collapse of ISO. Although I'm not sure to be honest. Um, Alan Moss was very careful and I found him to be a very charitable thinker, but he was always very much in, in line with those who saw the Democratic Party as the graveyard of social movements and it dealt right. with electoral politics in a very flat-footed manner that I was very frustrated with in, in many instances and ultimately ended up leaving the organization because of it. A lot of them have come around to supporting Bernie Sanders and and good on them. Like some of them have 100%. really reflected on, on their um, – there's sort of lack of foresight there in, a, in, a really, in really admirable ways. Some of them have not, which me as a former ISO member who ate a lot of shit uh, after departing that organization, I find that to be personally frustrating. But you know, this isn't about my feelings. This is about the movement. So I still find it to be a good thing. However, long tirade aside, the difficulty is that there are a lot of people who are converging around this inside-outside approach of a certain type, at least – 
practically oriented around the inside outside approach uh, in their activity, canvassing, you know, donating, door knocking, organizing for Bernie Sanders in this associated movement. And yet there's this massive gap that exists when it comes to sort of justifying that project, right? The why. So sure, we're doing this now because it's hot. We're we're playing the we're playing the card because it's hot and it's obviously hot, it's undeniably hot. Everybody knows it. Arguing against this at this point is like arguing against gravity. But aside from the the practical, pragmatic, um, sort of just obviousness of this strategic orientation right now, we have virtually no justification, explanation, or <laughs> uh, otherwise for it. And 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 that's why I find this this these papers, these uh, articles that you and Dustin have written to be such a breath of fresh air to not only initiate that conversation and lay it, lay down some groundwork for a future debate and discussion, but also like you guys did a pretty damn good job for a first, first go round, right? <laughs> Oftentimes the first go round is a little rough. You have to sort of, uh, you know, uh, brush up on your, your approach and your framework. And then you come to a better sort of consensus after, after a set of debate, but you guys nailed it the first go round. And I want to talk about a key component here. Sure. Sure. Um, let's talk about the party surrogate. Because we're jumping, we're, um, you know, I, I do this thing on DPS where I just hyper contextualize the fuck out of the argument without actually spelling out the argument. So let's do that now. Um, right. Well, of course, we're assuming everybody's already read this uh, very short piece in Catalyst. So yeah. there's probably no need to. It's only like, um, it's only like 80 pages. It's fine. Uh, yeah. What, yes. what's, what's this party surrogate and what role does this play? Because I think this is really like the lodestone, if you will, of, of the argument. Right. Right. So basically, um, you know, we're saying that. There's this is building, you know, we should be very clear that this is building on uh, and well, explicitly building on, you know, article that is much more well known than ours uh, by Seth Ackerman from a few years ago. Uh, what's it called? Party of a new type or something like that from Jacobin. I don't know, three or four years ago, whatever. Um, Episode one of DPS, by the way. So oh, there you go. Wonderful. This is, and, and, and that was very purposeful. That was not an accident. Yeah. So this well, we're, we're coming full circle here three years, <laughs> three years later. It's great. Yeah. No. And so, so basically, you know, he lays out there, I mean, among many other interesting things, the idea that, you know, we need some sort of new party, but that, that, uh, that party needs to have a different character from the traditional Democratic and Republican parties, which are, you know, in many ways, hollow organizations that don't have much internal structure. I mean, I can we can talk about what that means specifically. Obviously, they do have an internal structure that are not very ideological. I mean, again, that's also contested, but, you know, don't have uh, don't have very, very clear ideological boundaries and are certainly not accountable to the to the base of the parties in the way that uh, we'd want a party to be. And he basically says, well, it would be great to have a party like that that actually, you know, is able to overcome some of these structural barriers that are imposed by the nature of our electoral system by basically just running um, as uh, on the Democratic Party ballot line. And so we basically said, yes, we agree with that, that approach in general. And we think it was a very helpful and important corrective to other work that was, you know, either, you know, like you said earlier, trying to uh, just go the total third party route or was trying to go in the direction of uh, let's just take over the Democratic Party. But we we wanted to sort of flesh out different aspects of, of, of what an approach along these lines might look like. And at the, at the heart of this is this idea of 
the party of a new type in Ackerman's terms is what we call, you know, a party surrogate. And basically this would be a party in, in, in all but name that functions very much like traditional social democratic or, or socialist or, or, or labor parties of the early 20th century in the sense that it has a very highly mobilized mass uh, base uh, and membership. It's highly internally democratic in the sense that, you know, the membership is, is deeply involved in decision making uh, throughout the throughout the year through, you know, sort of different uh, local, state, national level um, decision making bodies, that there's a very clear platform political platform that candidates uh, must basically agree to. And if they deviate from that platform, uh, they can be, you know, sanctioned either by being kicked out of the party or, or whatever. Sanctioned in other ways, we wouldn't uh, maybe give them the same resources in the next election. And that this would be a party that is very capable of organizing a strong ground game as a result of its uh, highly mobilized base. And so that's basically what the party would be, except that um, it wouldn't be a party in a technical sense because we wouldn't have our own ballot line. We wouldn't be a legal party. It would just be a, it, it would basically be a technically a faction within the Democratic Party in the sense that we would just be running candidates on, I mean, with some exceptions. I mean, there's no problem like running third party candidates in, in a mayoral race or whatever, a city council race, if, if, if there's a competitive uh, you know, reason for doing so. Uh, but in general, we'd be running on the, on the Democratic Party ballot line. And we would be, in all other respects, completely independent of the Democratic Party. We wouldn't run for, you know, city or state or national committee positions. We may, I mean, that's something that is interesting to debate, actually, especially right now when we're coming up to the to the convention in, uh, later this year. But we, we wouldn't take part in the machinations of the party. It would be a completely separate entity and just totally use uh, the Democratic Party ballot line uh, instrumentally. That's that's our only connection to the Democratic Party. And the reason for doing that would be because if we sort of get swept up into the machinery of the party, uh, we fear that there would be many different mechanisms, many of which we sort of talk about in the piece, which would have the effect of disciplining our candidates, uh, disciplining our activists so that they support a broad range of candidates and elected officials that don't share the political perspective of the organization in order basically to access party resources. And so we want to avoid uh, those sort of disciplining effects of the party by creating in this alternative independent structure. And we think that the benefit of, of doing this is that by having a highly uh, mobilized democratic, uh, highly mobilized base, a highly democratic organization, we can actually, as we've already been seeing on a micro scale with DSA races around the country, we, you know, we can sort of counteract some of the problems that we would face with respect to not having nearly as much money as our competitors uh, from in the Democratic Party primaries by having a really strong ground game uh, that can allow us to uh, basically counteract the money that they would otherwise, our opponents would otherwise be spending uh, on things like advertising or uh, you know other different uh, kinds of uh, electioneering. Uh, we can neutralize that 
by virtue of having this really well organized, really well run and effective uh, mobilization apparatus, essentially. And the other great thing about it is that candidates that we run have really strong incentives. And I'm sorry to use the word incentives, but 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 there you go to essentially not break with what we want them to do because they depend almost completely on our support and in our patronage uh, in order to be politically successful, both in a literal sense of uh, we basically run their campaigns. And if they don't, uh, if they betray us or they do something that deviates from the party line in a strong way, then we will just stop uh, supporting them in the future through uh, mobilizing our, our members to uh, engage in their campaign. And also uh, in terms of the, the relationship that they have to the, their key voters, their voters wanted them in office because they represented a change. They represented some of a, a candidate that's more principled, that has, uh, you know, a, a, a commitment to working class issues and and values that that separates them from what you know folks have come to expect from uh, many democratic uh, neoliberal democratic candidates. And if our candidates start betraying that, well, then they're also going to be alienating the, the the voters that they depend on to win. So basically, the the nature of this new organization uh, is such that we can overcome some of the really strong and negative obstacles you know that we face by by having less money, and also we can ensure that uh, the candidates that we run don't veer too far afield ideologically because they depend on us for their own success. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, th- that's all really important. I think some of this, I mean, I sort of say your piece is a footnote to Ackerman, but now you guys have almost made Ackerman a footnote to your piece, which um, I think is a development that he would welcome. Um, you know, Ackerman lays down in his uh, party of a new type piece from several years, f- at least a few years ago. Um, again, episode one of DPS, bringing it all home, baby. Yeah. You know, uh, these are, you know, it's not, that wasn't a mistake. I've, I founded this podcast on this question. I mean, literally, obviously I've, I've, I took on other things. The anti-essentialism stuff almost kind of came on as an accident. It was almost like, oh shit, there's a lot of this crap that's getting in the way of us achieving this uh, party of a new type. Uh, what are some of those things? And, uh, you know, the anti-essentialism series was a way of trying to sweep away the old Gonza, the, the Gonza shysta in the words of Marx, the old shit, uh, all the old shit. I think I fucked that up. My German terrible, uh, uh, Jared, um, in mind, so <laughs> to sweep, you know, the anti-essentialism stuff was a way of sweeping away some of the old shit that had accumulated such that we could, such that we could focus our minds on the central questions. Right. And this is the central question. And and Ackerman goes through uh, in detail as to why it is that the way that we've conceptualized this question as a, as a third party consideration is wrongheaded. And it's a dead end, given the way that uh, the legal system and the way that parties operate in the United States political system have has uh, developed over the past 100, 150 some odd years. Um, and so your party surrogate is a way around that. But but also sort of addressing some of the pitfalls and traps and contradictions of trying to go in and through the institutions, as we saw the old new left, you know, sort of uh, took that long detour through the institutions, right? And we saw how that turned out. Uh, at best, they're you know they're they're now soft Warren supporters. <laughs> at worst, you know they 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 turned sort of third way, um, third way neoliberal. That that generation and and I, and I think it was as a result of that wrong headed attempt. Uh, and becoming, um, let's just say, becoming, um, you know, products of the various forces and contradictions that you will be inevitably, uh, you will inevitably, you know, be faced with if you try to go through that meat grinder 
of the Democratic Party establishment and and you know elite big money donor dollars and all the rest of it. So avoiding this is is really critical. But let me get to the central wager. I've had on a lot of progressives on DPS lately. Yeah, I listened to the one with Eric Levitz. That was great. I'm glad you had him on. Well, thanks. I mean, I've, he's been an inter- interlocutor of mine in private and, and, in, and in my head. I think if and, and it sounds like that's the case for you and uh, Dustin as well, um, that, that you, you could have no no worse, uh, no better, rather, I should say. You could have no better interlocutor, progressive interlocutor sort of in your head as like the big other or whatever the hell. My, dude, my Lacan is also terrible. My Germans, <laughs> my Germans shit. My Lacan is dusty. I don't remember exactly what it is, but that voice in your head, uh, you could do no better than having Eric Levitz as an interlocutor to help you think through questions in a serious way. Agreed. Your, your piece here rests on a wager and I want to get to that now. And I think that honestly, I think you guys really need to flesh this out a little bit more, not because I disagree with you, but because I think it's so central. And you've done that a little bit. It could be your editor. It could be uh, you know one of the good guys over there, Jack, have been telling you to knock it off and cut down the word count. But the wager seems to be that the way that progressives would fight back against this proposal would be that, no, 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 no. We have to beat Trump. We have to beat the right. And sometimes that means going blue no matter who. And you are – you at the outset, you are foreclosing that as, as a tactic, as a hold your nose – and, and join hands with the blue dog Democrats in order to face down the bad guys on the other side of the spectrum, right? That's that's the way that they've always seen this. Yeah. Um, and that rhetoric is all over the place right now. Bernie Sanders has to address that that concern every time he sits down in front of a TV camera these days. But you seem to be saying something different. That that's actually – it might result in some medium-term victories here and there. But in the long term – it's a disaster. And what your seem, your claim seems to be is that actually if we can peel off Trump would-be Trump voters who are, by the way, not very ideologically uh, coherent according to all political science uh, research, we can peel those, those voters away from that coalition by focusing on bread and, bu- bread and butter grassroots working class issues. And so there's a distinction between ultra-liberalism – on the one hand, versus sort of more bread and butter working class issues on the other hand. Um, that seems to be the wager. And I've laid out a lot here. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about that wager. Yeah, I think that I think that's one of the I think that that's a, that's a first wager. And then I would say that the second one is 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 related, but it's also about, you know, the wager that it actually makes more sense to stay outside the party versus try to take it over. I feel like that's a second wager, which I hope we can we can get to, because I think there's a lot of interesting things to say about that, especially now that we see, you know, how well Sanders is doing. But on this particular question of, yeah, this wager about the, the future coalition within the Democratic Party. Um, yeah, we're definitely suggesting or saying that it's not necessarily that it's uh, only uh, would be Trump supporters. It's also, you know, all kinds of other different people from the sort of multi, you know, very broad and multiracial working class who, you know, we think are going to be more interested in the long run in a kind of, uh, you know, focused social democratic uh, sort of platform like that being offered by Bernie Sanders. Uh, let me just let me just, uh, you know, sort of pause here to, to, to make clear that we're in no way suggesting that 
that a, a, an organization like this platform is going to be devoid of a focus on any uh, on, on a wide range of issues that, that are specific uh, or that disproportionately affect uh, particular particular groups in society. But what we're saying is, and, and I mean, we're already seeing this with Bernie Sanders. I mean, one of the reasons why he did so well in Nevada was because he, you know, his campaign did uh, extraordinary work listening to and, and reaching out to especially Latino communities in the state and under trying to take the time to be patient and understand the issues that uh, were, were motivating those folks to, to get involved in, 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 in vote in those caucuses. And, and so that aspect of it, uh, you know, making sure that we're also speaking to the broad range of issues, you know, that are important to different key groups within this broader coalition is, is central. So I, I want to make sure that's clear. But that said, it's also not a coincidence that Bernie Sanders is probably the only person you could imagine uh, who's capable of knitting together this extraordinarily broad, multiracial uh, working class coalition, and that he's done it by focusing primarily, obviously not exclusively, but on these sort of bread and butter issues that you're talking about, the Medicare for all and the college for all and good guaranteed jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And we think that if uh, the Democratic Party uh, were smart, that they would continue down this direction and that uh, the downside of, of doing that could potentially be you know, the loss of some of these uh, sort of suburban, you know, centrist Democrats who, you know, who may be considering uh, Trump, but that there's a pretty limited constituency that, that you could get by going the opposite direction and focusing on trying to appeal to the sort of median or the sort of centrist voters, uh, because the alternative basically alienates you know, millions and millions and millions of working class voters who are currently not engaged in politics at all and or who, uh, you know, are sort of minimally engaged. And we think that a strong, focused social democratic uh, platform along the lines of what Bernie Sanders is talking about has the potential. And I think we're already seeing this in the primaries, uh, you know, as some of the evidence has the potential to engage large numbers of working class voters who are just disillusioned and feel completely alienated from the political system in general and from, you know, party politics in particular. And we talk about in the piece, you know, this is a really large group of people we're talking about. You know, there's something like, um, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the of the people of, of adults in this country are are sort of non-voting uh, or excuse me, are, are sort of uh, political independents who 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 are not uh, leaning uh, strongly toward the Republican Party, i.e. people that would potentially be um, open to the kind of politics that we're talking about. And of those folks who are these sort of political independents who don't feel connected to either of the two major parties, you know, almost 50 percent of them don't vote. And so we're talking about, you know, probably over 10, around 10 or 15 percent of the of the adult population that doesn't vote at all, who are these working class voters who would be open to the kind of politics that we're offering, uh, that Sanders is offering, that that a party surrogate could offer. And those folks, you know, when you think about the fact that uh, less than 15 percent of the adult population actually votes in primaries, uh, I think it was like 14 percent voted in the last Democratic primary, you know. 
that's incredible that even if we could, you know, increase the amount of folks that are voting by three or four percent in the primaries, that that would be a sea change in the way in which uh, in the, the Democratic Party primary electorate. Now, that's a different question from like, are we going to to your original question of, well, does this mean uh, can we actually win uh, against Republicans by doing this? Because I think, you know, Levitz is correct that, you know, we haven't uh, the, the moderates uh, sort of did better. Uh, than the progressives say in, in 2018 in the in the midterms, and I think you know we 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 need to be uh, honest about that. That you know the Justice Democrats candidates, uh, DSA, well DSA didn't really have that many, but uh, the Justice Democrats candidates and other progressive candidates that were running to the left of mainstream Democrats, you know, had a few successes, but but didn't do great. And you know the Democratic majority is is, is is that we see in Congress now or in the House is a product of uh, the centrist Democrats. And so that that strategy did work in 2018. And and I don't think it's unreasonable to think that it could continue working to some extent in the future. But we think that you know if you keep going down that road, you're going to see increasing defection. You're already seeing a long secular decline in working class participation in the Democratic Party and party politics in general. And if we continue down this path of not taking this bold uh, social democratic uh, agenda seriously, that we're going to continue alienating more and more working class voters. And that strategy of just tacking to the centrist approach to try to, you know, on the margins, win over these uh, sort of, uh, you know, middle class, uh, primarily middle class sort of suburban voters as a strategy for, you know, winning majorities in the House and, 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 and in state races as well, that this is going to stop working and that we need an alternative. And it seems to us that, you know, the alternative is obviously a political project that's founded on these policies like Medicare for all, like you know, the uh, high Green New Deal, like, uh, you know, free college for all, et cetera, which are extraordinarily popular among the working class and the population in general, and which uh, if we bought into them wholesale could change the Democratic coalition in a, in a, in a very substantial way and could overcome some of the uh, losses that we might face from defections among these sort of centrist voters uh, who would be a little bit frightened uh, or unhappy with uh, these sort of stronger, uh, you know, government intervention uh, line that we'd be taking relative to the Democratic Party of today. Yeah, right. You, you got Top Gun on in the back, in the background on your television. You mind uh, turn that down a little bit? <laughs> I don't actually. I'm, what are you talking about? I'm kidding. Jet noise. Was that a jet that just was that a jet that just flew by as you were making oh, your final sorry. point? I don't know. Apologies. <laughs> yeah, you you don't even notice it. It's fine. No, I I used to live near an airport. Anyway, uh, that wasn't that was nice. A little ambiance for the for the listeners. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean your your spot. Sorry to take away from your your your, no, no, uh, no. your points there. Spot on. Uh, pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to support Dead Punnett Society with your hard earned dollars. We are entirely supported by the listeners of this program, and we cannot do this without the generosity of our patrons. So if you learn anything from DPS, if you enjoy this program, if you want to support the political project that I push on this show every single week, I encourage you to head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter of this show today. Not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of knowing that you are supporting the New Left Agenda, but you will also get access to our weekly B-sides, which are subscriber-only episodes featuring some of the most important takes, hot takes, opinions, interviews, and debates on occurring on the socialist left today. So you guys aren't going to want to miss that. Um, again, without being too earnest, without being too cheesy, 
I really do believe that DPS is plays a vital role in the debate right now. Um, as I will talk about at length with my guest today, Jared Abbott, there are very few shows that are taking this question of socialist transition seriously. There are very few outlets that are taking the demands that are being foisted upon us by the success of the Bernie campaign seriously enough to face down the challenges, the contradictions, the pitfalls, and the traps that are absolutely on the horizon. And I'm not just talking about rat fuckery, as they say, coming from the Democratic Party establishment. I'm talking about the contradictions of success. If Bernie Sanders is able to pull this thing off, and it's looking more and more likely by the week, if he's able to pull this thing off, we as the socialist left have our work cut out for ourselves because we have to be able to see this agenda through to, to victory. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to be too histrionic about this, but uh, a serious failure uh, by the Bernie Sanders administration, should he be elected into the White House, could potentially set back the socialist movement for many generations. And I don't mean to, to be gloom and doom. I'm just trying to spell out the stakes of, of, of what's on, on tap right now for us. Uh, it's not always the case that you are of a generation or your lifetime coincides with such a monumental moment in the history of humanity. Uh, but here we are. And I, don't, I hope I don't come off sounding too histrionic about that either. But I really do believe that this is one of those moments. And we have to rise to this challenge. We have to have the ideas. We have to be well-placed and we have to develop the capacities in order to influence these outcomes. Uh, Because if we don't, it'll be the progressives who do. And uh, I got nothing but love for my progressives. Everybody knows that. But I don't believe that the progressives have the roadmap, have an understanding of the capitalist state, that they have an understanding of political economy, that they have an understanding of the contradictions of power of the contradictions embedded in the Democratic Party. I don't believe that they have that understanding in quite the same way that we do. We Democratic Socialists, that is, which is why we absolutely have to be influential and we absolutely have to have a voice and a seat at the table in these discussions. And that's what I think DPS contributes to. I really do. I think we do this in a really unique way, uh, which is why I ask for your support. If you're down for that project, I encourage you to head to patreon.com slash dead pundits and support this project today because we can't do this without you i'd like to expand i'd like to build i'd like to grow i'd like to rise to the challenge that's in front of us but i need your help to do that all right enough out of me thanks everybody for listening and enjoy the rest of the interview that's really important i think like at the heart of this is my my original framing? You push back on it quite brilliantly. I was sort of regurgitating the framing, this voice and this progressive uh, big other in my head, or whatever it is, uh, that always uh, sort of frames it on these terms that are undoubtedly influenced by what others have called Trump derangement syndrome. Right? That there's this either or that either we support the blue dogs and we we uh, you know form this sort of popular front against um the ghouls or you know we lose and in 2018 uh you know is often held up as um as proof of concept for for what levitz and other people have proposed um and it would be easy to see it that way but i mean there's an argument and a fallacy there uh that i can't point to because i don't know the fallacies as well as my friend ben burgess but um (laughs) but that's to suggest that whatever happened necessarily had to have happened and it's you know therefore proof that it nothing else could have happened 
Um, and I think, you know, swing elections, yeah, ergo prop, yeah, that, that one, the propter hawk one, um, <laughs> I get shit for not remembering that one all the time. You know, I think that swing elections are a thing, right? Uh, they're yeah. midterm swing elections are a thing. They're a reaction to the presidential outcome, which, you know, a large percentage of the country, whichever way it turns out, is not going to be happy with. It's easy to catalyze voters, you know, um, in opposition to something and, and as an outrage vote. Um, we saw that with Obama. We saw it with Trump, and we will certainly see it. It happens with, every time. Yeah. It happens every time. Um, and so, you know, the, that proof of concept, I think, is quite shaky. Um, let's talk about where a lot of the sort of progressive and even lefty commentators go wrong with this. They they sort of look at voter mobilizing a, a, as a zero sum game. You you point to a, a passage, uh, a quotation by Sean McElwee, co-founder of the think tank Data for Progress. McElwee, I have uh, let's say conflicted feelings about that gentleman for a lot of reasons we won't get into. But anyway, he says uh, McElwee went on record as to saying at one point, forget Trump voters on the grounds that he can take someone who is deeply concerned about patriarchy and make them understand how patriarchy intersects with capitalism much more than I can uh, take someone who's mad because GM took their job away and then make them understand socialism. And, you know, you're sort of picking on McElwee here, but he's an avatar for this argument, a very well-known avatar uh, of this argument, but it's pretty popular on the left. And the distinction here that you raise between sort of ultra-liberalism which is remarkably unpopular <laughs> among the masses versus what I'm calling more bread and butter, although maybe I shouldn't because I'm too easily sort of uh, smeared as a brown shirt on, that, on, those, on those bases. But hey, when you're hungry, bread and butter is pretty awesome. Um, I, think, I think bread and butter is good all the time. Uh, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> these, these other issues that are actually much more radical you know, in content – Perhaps not in form, but in content like Medicare for all, like he pointed to. All of these, all of these programs have majority support. Hell, even a Green New Deal has forty nine percent support, even when people know that there will be things like new taxes and radically uh, sort of radical reorganizations of society. And so, you know, one, the thing that I wrote in my margin notes here, and this can sort of be a provocation to help you spell out this distinction in, in, in your way forward, you and Dustin's uh, way forward that you're proposing. But I almost wonder if the squad, the squad, you know, you you all know who those people are. If the squad won in spite of their ultralism, ultraliberalism, not because of it. Does that make sense? Because the question is, if Bernie Sanders is so damn popular and he has so much authenticity and so much credibility and people just admire him from all from all, you know, um, sectors of society. Why isn't that that kind of admiration, universal admiration, uh, you know, to be found in certain members of the squad? And I, you know, I've got no problems with the, the, you know, AOC is AOC. She's good and bad at times. Rashida Tlaib is a hero. Uh, Ilhan Omar is is a is a damn hero in the realm of foreign policy, as, as far as I'm concerned. No doubt. Um, so not to knock them in any way, shape, or form, but I think the assumption is they're not universally popular because of their identity categories, their identity positions. Whereas perhaps it's their rhetoric and messaging. It's far more tangled up in what you're calling this kind of ultra ultra liberalism approach, as opposed to this bread and butter democratic socialist approach espoused by Bernie. Let's talk about that distinction. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, actually rereading the article, I, I really said, I think this was not 100 percent clear, like what like ultra liberalism, I think here 
ends up encapsulating two different things that are related. One of them is um, focusing your campaign on issues that are certainly important um, and, and should definitely be discussed, but which are not galvanizing issues that cut across you know, broad, broad, broad segments of the working class so that uh, basically anybody uh, who's working class would benefit significantly from having them enacted, you know, like we've talked about, especially Medicare for all, you know, good jobs, Green New Deal, that kind of thing. Um, and if you focus more on, um, you know, like like even the squad, you're like focusing on stuff around, uh, you know, how terrible Trump is and, you know, the the uh, the impeachment and, you know, how, you know, we need to we need to stop this animal. Um, I mean, yes, obviously he's he's terrible and all those things. But, you know, by, by focusing on those issues that really, really appeal to the sort of MSNBC watching, uh, you know, sort of liberals, uh, you know, I, my, 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 my parents are in there, so I'm not trying to denigrate them or anything like that. But, you know, but by appealing to the issues that make those folks really excited, um, you know, using impeachment as, 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 a, as a key example here, you're signaling a focus on ultra liberalism, like this idea that there's a there's a kind of culture of elites. Uh, I think we say something like urbane uh, folks, uh, you know, are highly educated, you know, city dwellers uh, who watch Rachel Maddow and look down on everybody else. And I think that that's a part of what we're talking about. And maybe the the squad is, uh, you know, to, to, to varying degrees, because uh, they're, you know, they have different uh, perspectives on these things, playing into that. And the other part of it, which we talk about in the piece uh, with respect to labor in in Britain, is is this sort of laundry list idea, which is, which in some ways I think is even more important. Which Absolutely. is that, you know, okay, ultra liberalism. People don't like this sort of culture of like hyper wokeness, and they don't like this idea of like there's these sort of elites driving a culture, and they're looking down liberal elites that are looking down on everybody else. I think that's a real thing, and it's a problem. Um, <clears throat> but this idea that we can just throw out a hundred different things, all of which uh, on their own are good, of course. Uh, well, maybe not all of them, but probably I would agree with most of the things that uh, oh, somebody would throw out there as part of like a you know liberal laundry list of things. But the problem is that people don't know what you're talking about and they don't have they can't relate to that. It just feels like kind of made up, like 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 Elizabeth Warren's plans. You know, you have like. 80 different plans on all these different things. And there's no sort of takeaway. There's no basic message. There's no this really concrete thing <coughs> that people can get excited by and that they can think of you and say, oh, my gosh, they're going to deliver this thing that's really going to change my life. All they see is tons and tons and tons of different policy proposals and all these different issues, some of which they relate to, many of which they don't. And that, I think, is is a big part of the problem and that Bernie's, you know, obviously he's focused on, like I was saying before, on a wide range of issues. Um, and he's, uh, you know, very careful about speaking to different communities in the ways in which, uh, you know, are reflective of the, of the issues and, 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 you know, needs of those in particular communities. But at the same time, you know, he's focusing on these three or four huge issues <coughs> that everybody or virtually everybody uh, in the country who's not, you know, some rich asshole can get behind. And that's why he's so popular. And so why don't we do more of that? Because if we do that, we're going to be able to reach beyond 
you know, the sort of standard supporters of people like like AOC or like, you know, like DSA. We're, we're not immune from this. DSA is like, upper, you know, middle, upper middle class, highly educated, primarily white people. You know, not that many, you know, sort of like we're all like, I guess, working class in, in some technical Marxian sense. But, you know, we, most of us don't have sort of working class uh, backgrounds. Um, you know, we're sort of like downwardly mobile, uh, middle class people. Uh, and if we want to actually expand the base, uh, so that we can be electorally viable in the way that you were talking about before. Like, how can we, what's the argument against this idea that we just need to be tacking to the center, tacking to the center? Uh, well, the argument is that we have a political platform that doesn't just appeal to, uh, you know, highly educated, you know, middle class uh, liberals and radicals who, you know, are sort of occupy a similar uh, sort of political space, uh, but that also appeals to ordinary people. And it's not just, you know, McElwee says, like, forget the Trump voters. But when he says forget the Trump voters, I also hear him saying, forget working class Latinos, forget, you know, working class African-Americans, like people that don't like we're talking about people that don't relate to the kind of politics <coughs> that a lot of uh, sort of liberal uh, mainstream Democrats or even progressives are, are have on offer, but would potentially relate to what Bernie Sanders is talking about, because these are issues that are so central uh, to their lives and that addressing them would have such an incredible uh, positive impact on their lives. And so that's basically, you know, sort of what we're, what we're getting at is that <clears throat> we need to have a focus on these sort of specific broad issues, uh, just like Bernie Sanders is doing, and that that would enable us to reach these broader constituencies that go way beyond, you know, the bases that have carried almost every DSA candidate and, you know, all the sort of uh, Justice Democrat Congress people, you know, uh, to victory so far. Uh, a, a coalition very much like the one that Bernie just won in Nevada is the kind of thing that we're talking about. Yeah, couldn't be better timing than that. I mean, talk about proof of concept. My God, you had a 30% increase in turnout. And that was exactly Chuck Chuck Rocha's uh, wager, you know, his gamble. And of course, Bernie's wager all along. But Chuck really was the one who, who was on the ground sort of overseeing that operation in a lot of ways and arguing for it in the in the progressive media when everyone says, ah, ah, ah that's not what happened in 2018. This is going to lose. And and Chuck and Bernie and his team said, watch, watch and learn, young Padawan. <laughs> and and we saw it. And I got to admit, I was nervous. But I mean, that blowout was extraordinary. I mean, I went to, I saw a poll. Actually, you know, we're talking shit on McElwee. I'm, I'm going to continue doing that for a little while longer. It's okay. He can handle it. He's a big guy, literally and metaphorically. No, I appreciate uh, the work that he does. Like they, yeah. they put out some really interesting reports. Yeah. But you Data know, for but, Progress yeah. is doing a very good job right now. So we'll, we'll level that yeah. out anyway. I mean, he's not the only person behind that project. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of very dedicated social scientists who are doing the work there. Um, uh, but but they put out a they they discovered that um, it was forty five and under among four uh, caucus goers in Nevada forty five <laughs> and under. Um, Bernie's got Bernie got something like seventy percent of their vote. That's that's fucking unbelievable. Okay, and then you talk about you look at the racialized sort of ethnic comp the racial ethnic composition of that uh, that seventy percent, and of course it's incredibly skewed towards Sanders. And you have a thirty percent increase in turnout. Now keep in mind there was no increase in turnout as far as I've seen, and no measurable increase in turnout in Iowa. Well, there was an increase among millennials actually among millennials. Okay, so maybe maybe again if you break that down. It was uh, by, the gen. It was the gen. Uh, the Gen Xers who actually accounted for the lack of change in, in turnout. 
Interesting. I have yeah, I haven't seen those those cross tabs, breakdowns, or what have you in the way that I should. But but it's just to suggest that like there's proof of concept for you right there that that if you focus on these issues and and I want to talk a little bit about you know um, the way that this comes across because I've I've been trying to zero in on this on on DPS over the past week or two and I don't know if it's because I'm not an academic anymore. I don't know. It's just because I'm trying to read. That normally the, makes you much clearer in your. Thinking, it does. So. It really does. You know. I, I, and, but you know, I don't know if it's because um, I'm just sort of dealing with a lot more normies with respect to kind of uh, getting out there and, and pushing the word for Bernie. But but I'm trying to get to the more kind of just like um, banal, the seemingly banal observations, you know, rather than sort of the hyper intellectual ones. Yeah. And that's just to suggest that this distinction between <laughs> this this um, ultra liberalism versus the kind of more bread and butter working class approach. And I want to be clear here. Let's 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 push back on on some of the p- possible objections. This is like when I say ultra left. When I say ultra left, people say, "Ah, Adam just doesn't have the stomach for real leftism." And it's like, "No, no, no, no. We're not talking about a spectrum. It's ultra in terms of it's actually not what it seems." Right. It seems to be the most liberal. It seems to be the most left thing. But under further investigation, it's it actually doesn't produce any measurable or meaningful results. So therefore, it's just hot air. Right. It's just hot air. And so it's not we're not talking about like, oh, we need to moderate ourselves on this sort of left to right, whatever, you know, uh, two dimensional spectrum. Um, it's the case that ultra is a modifier that indicates that that it's that it's confined to the to the realm of rhetoric, and it actually backfires and produces far more conservative results, um, or just no results at all. Yeah, I was going to say probably no results. No results at all, right? Which which well, some, is to say you know, more conservative results in practice in the grand scheme of sure, the, the sure, way the sure. history progresses. Um, so so I want I want to be clear about that, but but this distinction between ultra liberalism on the one hand and kind of bread and butter working class uh, issues on the other hand is like. When I see Bernie Sanders talk to populations, he talks to them. And I hate to say this because I love AOC and I stand for AOC, even when a lot of other people, uh, you know, are, are shit talking her, or saying that she's a sellout, or really concerned about her messaging in various instances. I, I will defend her because I suggest that she is under some serious pressure, and if she had the support and the accountability to and of uh, this party surrogate, I think her her role would be very different. But but nonetheless, I defend her. But when I see too often, when I see her talking in front of crowds, and this is very, in, in, you know, uh, indicative of the kind of ultra liberal approach, she talks at people, right? She because when you're preaching about these kind of ultra liberal talking points about the holy trinity of race, class, gender, whatever, sexual, you know, it's not that those things aren't important because the working class uh, socialist approach absolutely takes those things seriously. But we're not talking at people. We're not proselytizing at people. We're, you know, when Bernie Sanders talks to people, he talks to them. He says, you have problems. You have these pressures as this per- person on the class spectrum, as this person on the race spectrum, as this person on the sexuality spectrum, as this person on the gender spectrum, whatever. You have these specific problems and I want to hear about what those, what those are. And then I want to talk about how we can work together to solve them. And not just that, but once we work to solve our problems on your little tiny slice of the pie, that we can look around and then on that basis, uh, pledge to fight for somebody else who's, who's standing on a different slice of the pie. 
or we can't figure, we can't solve your slice of the pie without also solving right. the others. Right? right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and again, it might be banal. It's not the most, uh, in, you know, nuanced or intellectualized uh, argument, but that really is the distinction that when people fall prey to this ultra liberal approach, they end up talking at people. And if there's a knee jerk, just kind of feeling that just normies is they are so used to being talked at and they don't like it. <laughs> And maybe they don't even realize that it's happened, but they'll walk away from that interaction with a negative, uh, just a negative vibe. Um, whereas Bernie Sanders connects with them because he's talking to them. Is there something to that distinction? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. I don't, I don't know. I don't listen to AOC speeches enough to know if I agree with you or not. But I, but I definitely uh, take the point, and I, and I can definitely imagine a lot of other politicians liberal politicians who i think fit into that very well and there is a certain sense in which uh sanders just sort of experientially is more concrete than the way that most uh liberal politicians who speak in terms more in terms of uh, abstract categories rather than showing how those abstract categories actually exist through uh, the lives of or the ordinary people that he's talking to on the campaign trail. Uh, so I think that that's true, and I think it's really important. And I also think that it is a little bit worrying with respect to the future of our movement because we don't have uh, a lot of candidates who have those sorts of skills that 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 you see uh, with Bernie Sanders. I think there we have a lot of great people. Uh, who are current and future democratic socialists, uh, you know, that 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 certainly could uh, develop those skills or, or maybe even have them, but they're not involved yet. But I mean, obviously, I haven't seen everybody that's running for office uh, for in DSA candidates. And I think a lot of them are, are sterling and uh, are going to do great work. But we definitely uh, need to find candidates who can sort of thread the needle of talking across working class communities and also speak in a very real and compassionate ways to ordinary folks on a day to day basis. And, you know, I think that's really difficult. And we have yet to, you know, discover who the who, who the sort of new crop of people uh, who are going to be running for office are that are going to be successful in, in, in making that happen. And it's going to be a it's going to be a true test when, you know, we start to see candidates run in in districts that have, you know, smaller percentages of very liberal people. Right. Um, and because because I think I don't know what the breakdowns are, but, you know, and if I'm wrong, then I hope somebody will, will, will tell me. But my sense is that most of the candidates that DSA has run and, and where we've won offices are places where, we, you know, you can basically win by mobilizing a very liberal, you know, middle class, you know, primarily not. That's that's unfair to say only because there's a lot of working class people in, in some of these cases, but primarily very liberal base. And you don't have to have the same kinds of political skills that, that Bernie Sanders is showing in the campaign right now. And when we start having candidates that are that are running for office in, in those contexts, which are, you know, much more predominantly working class, which are, you know, have much more diverse sort of class backgrounds and, uh, you know, might not be as familiar with a lot of the 
issues and ways of speaking that are sort of normal for, you know, decently well-educated progressive people, you know, that's when we're going to start to see, you know, who these candidates are that, that have those sorts of skills. Yeah, no, that's, that's really important. And let's, I'll use this as a segue to get into one of the most essential parts of, of this article, um, of these articles, which is that, you know, it's, it, I think you're right. We need to look at, so why is it that our generation, our generations, right? The, the, the disease, the, the X's, the, you know, the, um, the zoomers, the millennials, whatever, what our, this, this 25 year group of people who have come to adulthood and are, are the most rabid sort of progressive lefty types of supporters. So I, I definitely don't want to rule out the, the good boomers and Gen Xers out there, but, um, but they're certainly concentrated, at least in the, in the, among the politically active, they're certainly concentrated in the younger generations of sort of 40 ish and under. So why is it that we're not producing these Bernie style candidates, we'd have to look at structural uh, determinants, right? Uh, and one of that being that this it's this laundry list approach because the people who came up in that gen- on that generation of the left came up in an environment where you have to constantly signal, don't you? You have to signal, signal, signal. And you can't talk. And I, I catch myself doing this all the time. Believe you me, I do. And I fucking hate it, Jared. <laughs> I edit, I, I edit my damn self. Anybody wants to hate themselves, you know, on a weekly basis, just edit yourself uh, and have and listen to the way that you talk uh, over and over again, <laughs> you know, multiple times a week uh, in your headphones as you're, you know, uh, editing your podcast. I catch it myself. I'm not, I'm not, you know, free of this sin by any stretch. So, you know, that caveat aside is that people like us who were raised up in this political environment where you have to sort of constantly signal that, oh, I'm talking about class, but I'm also talking about race. Oh, but if I'm talking about race, I can't leave. Uh, and gender uh, and sexuality. Oh, also ethnicity. Uh, also, you know, there's this, there's this anxiety that this kind of like vampire's castle that we were all, most of us sort of came out of uh, induces in us that forces us to take this laundry list approach. And, and and there's nothing wrong with having a, a constant attunement to the to all of these issues. You have to. I mean, there's no question that you have to. The problem is when you feel like you have to socially signal uh, these types of things constantly, which forces you to speak in a way that you're talking at people rather than to them. And I, and I see that in our organizations in DSA. Um, I see that in some of our candidates. And I think that when we win, we win in spite of that not because of it. And again, this isn't, look, this isn't the most theoretically uh, sophisticated argument I've ever made on this show. Uh, but, but I, but I think it's an important one for us to, to wrap our heads around. And, and one of the ways out of this is something that you raise in your article. It's really important is getting a sense for priorities. What is, what, what do you, what do you guys write about? There's a lot you say about priorities. Uh, spell that out for our audience here. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's what we've, you know, sort of been dancing around a lot here already, which is just this idea that, you know, like I've been saying, we need to have uh, obviously sensitivity to and, you know, a real commitment to understanding the perspectives of uh, all the different communities in, in our in a potential coalition. But at the same time, you know, political campaigns are defined by a relatively small number of, of issues. And that's something that is just a fact. And if we're not aware of it, then, you know, we can end up running much less successful campaigns than uh, we otherwise might. And that, you know, obviously for most of us, Bernie Sanders is a sort of lodestar uh, example of, of what a better approach would look like. And it, it's essentially a matter of focusing on 
those issues that are basically appeal most broadly uh, to the widest segment of, of the sort of working class uh, in this country. Um, and we know what those issues are. We know how popular they are. Um, and if we had a party surrogate that basically developed a program, which, you know, didn't look a lot different than Bernie's uh, platform, honestly, and we said your candidates need to commit to this platform and, uh, you know, we're going to hold you accountable to it, um, you know, that would be a major break from the way that uh, political campaigns are, are, are run in general uh, these days or forever in the U.S. Uh, and it would have uh, potentially very positive effects on uh, not just our capacity to win, uh, but also on the quality of the people that, that, that we elect into office. And, and on this issue of why do we not see more of these folks uh, you know, who are who who potentially could be candidates like the ones we're talking about. You know, I would first say, I don't know, maybe there actually are a bunch of people that are running right now that are that are great. And I just don't know who they are because there's just so much going on in DSA. I can't keep up with oh, it. Yeah. I mean, DSA's um, but, elected 100 people at the state and local level. So right, I mean, we right. certainly I mean, I, yeah, that caveat is definitely well taken. But, but the, but the second but we the can't second possibly know that, those people. <laughs> uh, right, but the second thing is yeah. that there's just a lot of people that are, uh, you know, haven't been convinced to run yet, you know, like, like sure. ordinary working class people don't have time, like, these, especially these sort of local state races, like they're, you know, the it's hard to, you know, you need to have decent job, you need to have savings in order to be able to run for these offices. And you need to have the sort of like cultural social capital to know how to do it well. And, you know, that sort of self selects people that tend to, uh, you know, not be uh, the sort of uh, sort of organic, sort of more organic, sort of working class candidates um, that, that that we'd be talking about, and so I think over time, uh, you know, that can change if we're if we're very thoughtful about it. Right. So, um, so the party surrogate would be the infrastructure that would enable people to run, because right now the 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 uh, the demand is such that if you run, it's all on you. You know, you you might have somebody inside the party or some some campaign strategist who's like, hey, 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 you should do this thing. I'll help. But it's still primarily on you. This would more or less be kind of like in a union election. I don't know if any of you have ever been a part of a, a, a union local election where you know we sort of uh, a group of people sort of there's an exist, existing infrastructure, there's experience, there's um, you know the wisdom that comes along with that, and they sort of say, hey, you know, you should run for this thing. We're we're going to help you. Like get on our slate, right? Like you don't have to do all the work, right? You know, you have to actually you know you have to show up to the right places and do the right things and and speak out and. And, and be an agent in that process. You're not like a puppet by any stretch of the imagination, but but you're not expected to take on the entire burden by yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about in closing here, the right recipe. And by way of getting into that, I think like I want to talk about the state, the election selection strategy here, because yeah. that's a big part of it too. Right now, DSA has uh, over 100 elected officials that are affiliated or endorsed or what have you. You know, there's not enough information about those people, unfortunately, because of the uh, the the, um, you know, the let's say the growing pains associated with that that group. And there's also the fact that let's be honest, these are political constraints, too, as much as anything else. Let's put it all out on the table um, that that having a centralized organization of any type is 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 far and away not like a universally agreed upon um, 
you know, aim. <laughs> in fact, especially uh, in DSA, right. especially in DSA, you know, in fact, it's quite the opposite. So let's be clear that what we're arguing for here is, is not just sort of like a, a struggle. Uh, um, it's not just like an institutional reform requirement or what have you. It's a, it's a, it's a political, it's a far more deeper seated political argument and debate. Um, but let's, before we get there, let's talk about how we choose where and how and when to marshal our resources, because that seems to be a really critical component here. Yeah. So, I mean, we say basically in the piece that you can't, if you're going to be doing something like a party surrogate and and it's going to be some sort of organization like either that is DSA or that's, that's like DSA, but on a bigger scale, you know, we just suggest that, I mean, it's pretty simple, but basically, historically, if you're a party that's uh, lacking in resources compared to the existing parties uh, that has, you know, very low name recognition, you know, that has no weak party brand, so to speak, um, you know, and this is basically we're talking about historically socialist, social democratic labor parties that sort of burst onto the scene and disrupted, you know, traditional uh, party systems. Uh, you're basically doing this uh, from the basis of some sort of political heartland, right? You're, you're picking a place in the country where you can uh, show uh, that you can succeed by perhaps taking control at the state level. You know, the great example, well, there aren't that many examples in the U.S. history, but but the, the, the primary examples uh, of something like this having happened in the U.S. were, you know, North Dakota, Minnesota, with the examples of the Nonpartisan League and the, and the former Labor Party in those states, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, where you actually took over a whole state and you can then govern and you can show people uh, in that state and hopefully in nearby states that you can uh, do this well, that, yes, you're radical and you're you know promoting a new political agenda, but that you actually know how to govern, that you're sort of quote unquote responsible. You're not just a, a, a sort of wild card uh, that people can trust that you are going to uh, be effective and actually deliver things that they need, deliver things for communities. And then if you can build something like that on a relatively small scale in a particular region of the country, which is much easier to do than doing it in 20 different places at once, because you can try to concentrate your monetary resources. If you're doing it in a couple of states that are next to each other, you can also concentrate you know, personnel um, and material resources uh, to, to use them in both, in both areas. And you can generate electoral successes in a sort of positive feedback loop within these particular areas, get to the point where you can govern, say, you know, in cities, but ideally at the state level. And then, you know, you can you can build the name recognition of your party in that area, that part of the, the country. And then you can use that as a springboard to show in other places where voters are going to be really skeptical of saying, oh, I don't want to take a chance on these Democratic socialists because I, you know, I don't think once they get in the office, they're going to be like that Shama Sawant, not that they're going to know who that is, but, you know, like they can't work well with other people in, in office. I'm not saying actually I think she's worked fine, but but that would be the critique. And but no, like they they've done very well. You know, they've, they've used the state as a laboratory for, uh, you know, getting various progressive policies passed and showing that they're not as crazy as people might have thought. And they're building upon that momentum in particular regions of the country to expand their base out um, to other parts of the country. So that's that's basically um, the idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's really critical in terms of, of, of broadening this thing out. But what this requires then, right, is is um, what the strategy, this tactic requires is a, a motivated and a, a relatively centralized, albeit yes. a democratically centralized, not democratic centralism. OK, democratically right, 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 centralized. Right. 
to be clear there. Uh, a political body, an organization, a collective agent that could make these decisions, have these debates, and then carry these things through. And right now, the biggest hurdle, and I talked about this at length on the B-side, the patrons of Dead Punnett Society who who made it through that two-hour B-side that I put out last week, uh, will know that this is something that's kind of been haunting me, if you will. And I was very candid about that on the B-side. Patrons should check that out. If you're not a patron, you should be and give that a good listen. I'm haunted by this this dilemma that we face right now as a, as a socialist left in this country, whereas on the one hand, we have never been stronger. We've never had greater capacities. We've never had more advanced and del- – well, not never, but in recent memory, we haven't had – in our lifetimes, we haven't had more developed and advanced cadres than we do now. And yet, there just doesn't seem – we have very urgent political and organizational demands – and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of stomach for for what needs to be done right now. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, are you? Are you? Uh, I'll give you a chance, obviously, to, to sort of um, riff on that. But are you broadly optimistic that we're headed in the right direction um, in the wake of this Bernie wave? I, I mean, uh, shoot. I, in a certain sense, it's a, it would be absurd to say no, right? Because. Yeah. Um, we, even if we didn't, uh, improve the sort of coordination efforts in DSA at all compared to what they are right now, we're still going to see, you know, lots of new candidates cropping up all over the place and many of whom will get elected and we'll see an, you know, an increase in the number of people that get elected. I think that's, that's probably going to happen regardless. And so, uh, that's, that's positive. There's no doubt about it. The question is, you know, what's the counterfactual really like, and, and, and could we, if we were somehow able to, in some sort of um, other world, you know, create a DSA that would that said, you know, we have X amount of resources and we can only use them in, you know, a certain number of places. And we're going to deploy those resources strategically based on this sort of like uh, strategy that we've democratically come up with. And, you know, now we're going to implement it. Would that allow us to get further down the road? Um, I think maybe it, it or likely it would. But I agree with you that, you know, that's not and that's probably not in the cards for DSA in the short term. Although I, you never know, because I think the, you know, the if, if touches of power, touches of success like this, you know, especially something so unprecedented as like what's happening with Bernie. I think they have the tendency to sort of concentrate people's minds in a, in a really productive way. And I think that we can, we, we might actually start to see people um, being willing to talk about these issues um, in a more strategic way going forward, because things are a lot more real than they used to be. Like, these are not just theoretical conversations. This is like, how do we actually do this? Uh, like, like starting now, not like, oh, well, if we had X, X and X and X and X, like, how do we, how, how would we do it? This is like, what can we do to actually be more effective as an electoral vehicle now? So I think it's, it's not in, inconceivable that, that, that something more productive like that could happen. Um, and I, and I very much hope that it does, but I also think that, you know, from my perspective, it would be better if, you know, basically Sanders just created or Sanders people, we all got together and created a bigger organization. Um, I don't, I actually don't know how I, I don't, I don't have strong feelings about this yet, but I basically think we should, uh, you know, DSA should be a part of some other organization or a a coalition and that it should, our revolution didn't, I mean, our revolution has a lot of, you know, things we could talk about, but it it didn't turn into the thing that I was hoping that it could have been, which is a broader kind of electoral thing. And so maybe it will change. I don't know, but, uh, but, but if we could somehow come out of this with like the justice Dem types and then the DSA types and then the RF types and then all these 
tons of you know new Bernie organizations that have swung uh, that have sprung up into existence all over the country, and just have some sort of like founding convention of a whatever we want to call the thing. Uh, you know, in the in the winter of 2021, uh, you know, I think that would make a lot more sense because you're going to get a lot more people that are you know focused on you know, sort of these strategic questions around electoral, um, and that it would be easier to. Uh, move forward a conversation like this than it would be through DSA. And then DSA can continue to do the amazing work that it's doing in so many different places, you know, in different social movements, union work, et cetera. Um, and then also, you know, be a be an active member of this broader electoral group. And maybe these are conversations that are happening uh, among, you know, different groups uh, already. But of course, the, 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 the fear, the risk obviously there is that this would turn into, uh, you know, a kind of, a realignment type thing rather than a party of a new type type thing. Um, and how, and that would just be a battle that we'd have to have within it is to say like, you know, we, we think it makes more sense for this organization, you know, to try to create a, you know, an infrastructure and in its own brand identity. Sorry. I mean, I, I hope that's not offensive. I'm using the word brand, but you get the no, idea. No, I think it's um, important. Yeah. And we have to, we have to talk about that. Yeah. And that, and that, and that we're doing that, um, and, and not, you know, saying that our approach is, um, let's just try to get as many progressives as we can, um, elected, you know, here and there, and let's, you know, try to take over the democratic party. Um, you know, that would be a battle that we'd have to fight, but I think it would be worth having that, that fight and seeing how well we could do to create some sort of larger, uh, political entity. And I think that, uh, probably it would be more realistic than to say that the thing that DSA could turn into this sort of a thing, you know, so that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's all really important. I'm a little more, uh, not cynical is not the right word because I don't think it's cynical at all because my, my perspective comes from, from sort of reading the, the structural tea leaves, if you will, of, of the organizational terrain as it exists now coming out of the, the boom from 2016, 2017, which is that, you know, you do have to ask yourself, where will this change come from? Is there a receptivity to it? Can the Bernie wave sort of inspire it? I think it can. Now, I don't think the re- I don't think it's going to come from some of the most the the fiercest and the most admirable Bernie Bernie supporters out there, right? I mean, you, you see this incredible surge of of insane. I mean, I'm, I'm I come from the media wing of things, so it's not. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that we're all little raving narcissists the way that we are, and we we uh, sort of uh, hyper focus around things that we're <laughs> immediately involved with. So I think about the media a lot, but I also think the media is important. It's not for nothing. But I think about the people coming up around sort of rising with Crystal Ball is a name that I I probably name drop every fucking week on DPS. Yeah, but I think it's know. that important. And I just had Nomiki Konstan, who's a really powerful progressive sort of media figure. And uh, the Young Turks, who most of whom have sort of shaken their Warren silliness and come out on board with uh, Sanders in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, it is it is as is, is brave as those types of people are and their listeners are coming or are, are being catalyzed around this message in a big way it's not going to come from them. <laughs> Let's yeah. be clear. Uh, you know, the Eric Levitzes, uh, the, the other people that those sort of more wishy-washy progressives, I say that with love and admiration. Um, I think he's a wishy-washy yeah. socialist. Wish- but not- he is. <laughs> he doesn't know it. It's fine. Eric and I just need a few beers. We need to talk a little bit about historical materialism. And I think we've got him on board. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, but, but th- those people as good as they are, and I say it all the time, it's not going to come from them. Right. There's a relatively small cadre of people who have the knowledge and the the desire and the information and the ability to, to pull this thing off because um, otherwise it's just going to sort of dissipate. 
right, into the ether. And this becomes even more dangerous if Sanders wins. Um, and, and maybe that's best left for a, another episode because, Jesus, there's a lot, so much to talk about there. But here's my wager. I'm just going to put it out there so it's here. I'm, yeah, burying, yeah. I'm burying it in the, the final hour and a half of this A-side. I fear that there's going to be a renewed turn to horizontalism within the locals in DSA after this election. Why? Why indeed? I think there will be a rhetorical shift to um, to some sort of vertical, more centralized organization. But I think in practice, it'll be a renewed turn to horizontalism because these various leadership sectors at the local and regional level have a lot to lose. You're asking them to dissolve the sort of power networks that they have they have expended their blood, sweat, and tears on over the past three years. And sort of reintegrating uh, these locals into a much more centralized style process. And so the charitable way of reading that would be that if we are going to overcome that, that sort of that structurally motivated, what I'm calling a structurally motivated horizontalism, which is to say that these, these kind of leadership cadres at these, at these local, uh, at these, at the local level of DSA have, have fought and won various, uh, various routines, various power structures, various whatever. Um, you're going to have to you're going to bring them in. You're going to bring them on board in some way, shape, or form such that they don't feel like the hard work that they've expended over the past three years will be um, overturned. Does that make sense? I think that um, – Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean – I mean I, I might have made that sound uh, – you know, th- their motivations sound, seem cynical. But I don't, I don't necessarily mean that. Um, as I've said, I said at length and very candidly so on the B side last week uh, to my patrons, you know, I, I've been there. I have absolutely been in a place where I'm expending 40 to, 30 to 40 hours a week unpaid to build various activist, socialist, or labor organizations. Yeah, man, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I suspect many people in the audience will, I, maybe they're there right now or they've been there in the past. And, and I trust me, I get it. I get it. And I've busted my ass to put these uh, these processes in place and to build these power structures at my, you know, in my local chapter without in many instances, without a single, you know, shred of, of support from the national. So who are these centralizers to come in and overturn this hard work that we've done? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that you well, you might be right, but I think a couple of things are going in. A, look, I'm I'm generally much more like pessimistic about DSA than than I'm feeling right now. So um, you caught me at an interesting time. Um, but I think that there's potentially going to be such a huge influx of new people uh, through the Sanders campaign that they can uh, basically just win every vote. <laughs> Um, that's a really positive thing. Now, of course, some of the new people that might come in might end up, you know, feeling drawn toward um, a, a different horizontalist model. That's certainly that's certainly possible. But and that certainly did happen, obviously, in, in 2016 to some extent. Uh, well, to a large extent, even. But but I think the difference now is that people are like they're feeling that this is real, like that what we're doing electorally has led, even if Sanders loses, that it has legs in a way that is 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 like qualitatively different even than it was just a few years ago. And so I think that that's going to be a real thing that can sort of mitigate against some of the things you're talking about. But I think the other thing that we can do 
which, uh, you know, it's interesting. We haven't talked about uh, one minute on this conversation. And Dustin and I certainly uh, sort of hand wave about in, in both of our pieces is this idea of like sort of how what we're talking about relates to sort of base billing. Right. Um, and I think that actually uh, if we if we're talking about base building in terms of like, you know, building new constituencies, particularly, you know, among workers through unions, but, you know, also through tenant organizations and and other sort of potentially real you know, mass organizations like that, you know, not some of the more caricatured versions of, of base building that, that, that we're familiar with. You know, if we can emphasize sort of the the, the, the relationships that, the, that we see between the electoral work that we're doing and those sorts of base building enterprises and the way that they mutually reinforce each other and about how, you know, DSA strategy going forward could be basically uh, pursuing both of these uh, at the same time in this sort of mutually reinforcing way. And if they can see, you know, like here in Boston, we've done a ton of Bernie work and, you know, we're going to be sending tons of people into a rent control campaign after the campaign is over. And we can show the sort of people that were more skeptical of the Bernie campaign. Oh, well, look, we, we just you just got 100 foot soldiers for doing something that you really care about. Um, and, and if we can I mean, it's not going to resolve all the tensions for sure. But I think that framing it in those ways, to the extent that you can, you know, is, is going to make a difference. But like I said, on the whole, you know, I don't think DSA is going to be the vehicle. And so um, it's probably going to DSA status quo probably won't change as much as, as we hope that it might. And it's going to have to be some sort of broader organization. But but I do think that the, what I just laid out is like not implausible and that in, that, that in the in a in a certain draw like that, that that could be uh, the outcome we get. I think you're right. Yeah. And, and this is one of the things I'm trying to tease out here. And, and, and apologies for sort of pasting my pet project onto your uh, important no, topic and debate. But I do think this is something I'm trying to grapple with, like just uh, fiercely grapple with uh, over the past couple of weeks as as a potential Bernie Sanders victory becomes more apparent and the and thus the urgency for getting this shit right and getting like an audience and wide interest in this stuff is so important. And I got to be honest, look, I mean, we're even deeper in the A side and we're, we've got to wrap this up pretty soon. Uh, and, and thank you so much for being generous with your time. Um, I try to keep these to about an hour, hour and 15 and uh, shouts out to the listeners who are, who are uh, hanging in with us. But, um, you know, I, I have been, a, I'm a I'm trying to shake my cynicism because I've seen the direction of interest. Cause again, I'm in the media and, and I know this is a very limited metric, you know, to judge, but, uh, but, but I, but I, I see the interest going in directions that are contradictory. <laughs> They're contrary to, to the, the emphases that I'm trying to point to right now. Right. And at least in the, in the left media sector, and perhaps maybe that maybe this is wrongheaded. Maybe this is just entertainment. Maybe people just listen to podcasts to get their jollies, to ignore the shitty, you know, the shitty work day they've got in front of them to, to escape their problems, to just have a good laugh. Uh, Lord knows I do, but, but I, you know, I say it over and over again and, and people, I think people are surprised by this. And I have that, I have this, you know, when I, when I do an episode on labor or uh, say socialist strategy of this type, it almost always gets the fewest listens of any of the other topics that I do. And I see that I have that perspective. And maybe that's why I'm like a little bit bitter about this topic, a little bit more cynical than, than average, because as a, a quote content creator, right. Who's on the one hand focused on, Hey, how do I continue this project? Right. And keep this fucking thing going. And on the other hand, how do I continue to push my principles and things I care about, the things I think are important without losing people. Um, this is the tightrope that I have to walk constantly. And, and I see, and every time I walk it, I pay a price, 
And, and that's the thing that makes me a little cynical and a little bit bitter. And it makes me wonder like, where are these big institutional platforms? Why aren't, why, you know, fuck it. I'll say it. Why isn't Chapo Trap House having a series on what would, what would Bernie Sanders do if he was elected as, as president? They would immediately have a quarter million serious democratic socialists across the country thinking very like concretely about these problems. But that's yeah, not well, what people want. Yeah. People want to have a laugh. Yeah, I mean, people I'm, want to I'm, own I'm, the libs. Yeah. Um, I've been a little bit annoyed by Jacobin on this. Too, Jacobin, you know? I mean, too. I, Look, I, I, I'm i a Jacobin stan. I love you guys. I, I love I have Baskar on the show, Connor Kilpatrick, Megan Day, uh, Luke Savage. I'm a stan of the highest sort when it comes to Jacobin. But why the right, fuck right, right, are right. they not doing this stuff? Why are their associated right, podcasts right. not doing this stuff? You know, I'll call them out. Why aren't they? Why are the Jacobin podcasts not doing this stuff with with? Uh, exception to Micah Utrecht's uh, podcast, who, who talks about this stuff pretty well. And he's also a busy guy. He's not primarily a podcast layabout like myself. Um, but th- th- that's where I'm just, I'm, I'm a little frustrated. I'm encouraged by the the Bernie wave. I'm definitely encouraged by by the uh, the level, amount of clarity that your article uh, gives us, uh, Jared. You and Dustin's article gives us. But I see the urgency in front of us with with Bernie's uh prospects increasing by the day and and it and it frustrates me any any parting words on that we're totally like we're, we're uh, going off on a on a crazy train <laughs> here but it's it's probably an important one what do you think well i, I guess the other thing i would say is that i think you're absolutely right and actually it, i've heard a, a number of uh, pieces or listen, read a number of pieces recently by you know the, the more realigner types in, in 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 the bernie world like like i listened to a great interview recently by walid shahid and he gave a very clear uh, cogent analysis of why he thinks the Democratic Party is already being realigned and why we're already on the path toward a new party, um, you know, thanks to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And if we don't have DSAers and other, you know, folks that are in the Bernie uh, universe directly Inter, you know, speaking to uh, the issues that, that people like Shahid are talking about mm-hmm. and explaining what our differences are, then that is just going to become the dominant narrative that everybody accepts totally. coming out of the Bernie. And, totally. you know, that's why, you know, I just was very happy to hear you have on Eric, uh, you know, Levitz. And I just couldn't uh, support what you're saying even more that I, I think if not only do we need to be having this conversation uh, a lot more, we need to be having it in conjunction with these sort of more progressive uh, commentators, I think even more so than the than, than the folks to our left. We yeah. need to be focusing yeah. on having those debates with the progressives because that's where the real battle's at. Yeah, and they're right. They're right a lot of the times. I have Dan yeah. Marins on this show, HuffPost politics writer, you know, and 100%. a friend of mine. And he he has no problem looking at me in the face and saying, Adam, I fucking disagree with you. And here's why. And he he pushes back on this thing like, OK, you guys are pushing this Bernie strategy, but it didn't work in 2018. What are you going to do in 2020 and beyond to actually make it work? And you know what? He's not wrong. Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. And that's but you but but then you know, what we need to do is reframe the question, reframe the stakes on how we we formulate our rebuttal to that, that really important pushback. Right. And, and that's why staying in contact with these people is so crucial. And I, I'll tell you, I'll just, I'll put it out there. Um, people like Eric Levitz learn from us, um, a lot and, and, and they incorporate what they learn from us. I've had some very, and I'm, I'm, I'm flattered on the one hand. I'm also somewhat embarrassed to say this in public, but I've had very high level, 
progressive types of people say, you know, tell me at various intervals how much they've learned from various guests that I've had on my show. And I think, wow, you you guys learn from us? And it's like, hell yeah, they do. Of course they do. <laughs> Bernie Sanders reads Jacobin. You think Bernie Sanders doesn't learn from Jacobin? Well, I think he knows um, everything there is to know myself. At but, this point, um, he does. Yeah, he's sort of a godhead at this, at this point. But <laughs> no, but yeah. So anyway, we've we've gone off on this. Everybody should definitely be reading these pieces. It will not be the last time I talk about it. Maybe I'll have you, uh, you and or Dustin, back on the show at some point to to really kind of uh, do an update about this, to talk about the X's and O's, to to have much a much more kind of. Um, uh, sort of a, a visionary kind of ex, exper- thought experiments of various sorts about what this party surrogate might look like. How might it be organized? Uh, what social forces might we put together in order to do this? I actually had the uh, pleasure of talking about this piece when it was still being formulated uh, early last summer and uh, over beers with Dustin um, at Guastella, who now is a, a staffer with the Teamsters uh, local um, he was a former academic. He's a DSA, uh, Philly DSA member, um, longtime DSA type of guy, big, big in the Medicare for all campaign, uh, highly instrumental actually in making that a national level campaign for the listeners out there. But I talked to your co-author Dustin about this piece and, and he was talking to me very concretely about the, the specific social forces and political groups that would comprise such a formula, you know, such a formation. Um, so you guys aren't just pie in the sky thinking like, well, what if, wouldn't this be neat? Like you guys have a lot of really embedded concrete ideas. And so it'd be great to have you back on the show. Long story short, to be able to talk about that. Um, any parting words, uh, stump speech, rallies, uh, rallying cry, soapbox narrative, what have you for the people before we let you go? No, man, just excited to see how South Carolina goes. That's the only thing on my mind right now. That's right. <laughs> Let's kill it in South Carolina. Jared Abbott is the author of these two pieces. They'll be in the show notes for sure. Uh, come back anytime. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks so much, Adam.